I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. All right, Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9, I'll read to the end of the chapter. So Paul writes, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Not a lot in that passage that's hard to understand. Okay, I mean, the, we're talking commands here. Pretty much it's a, it's a, a bunch of bullet point, you know, staccato commands coming at you. Do this, don't do this, do this, do this, don't do that, be this way, so on and so forth. Easy to understand, hard to apply. And it's hard to apply because we still have that fallen nature within us. We still live in a fallen flesh. So we sometimes rebel against this, even as believers. And we'll look at that as we go along. But last week, just kind of doing a brief recap of what we looked at previously in verses 3 through 8. We looked at the first outflow of living a life of Uh, as a living sacrifice to God, a life wholly dedicated to the Lord, as it is uh, shown with humility. It begins with humility, not being high-minded, but being sound-minded, having a, a, a right reckoning of yourself in relation to others in the church, and then also recognizing that you are a vital part of this thing called the body of Christ. You are a member of this body. We each come from different backgrounds, yet we have been built together by the Lord through the work of the Holy Spirit into one body. And as such, then we have been graced, we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit with a gift from the Lord to edify the body, to to nourish the body. And then we are commanded by Paul then to use these gifts, to, to to not hold back. If you have a gift, you use it and you use it for the edification of the church. Now, this idea of humility and living a life as a living sacrifice last week was in the context of spiritual gifts, as we've been saying, Uh, having been born again by the Holy Spirit, we have then been gifted by the Holy Spirit. And then contrary to some, we believe that every Christian has a spiritual gift. And I argued last week that it's a gift that is sort of an amalgam of qualities that you see from the various lists. Paul gives various lists throughout Scripture. They're not exhaustive lists. They're not meant to give you every single aspect of a spiritual gift, but to give you some ideas as to the kinds of giftings that there are available. And I argued that it is sort of a, the gift that you have is an amalgam. And I kind of use the couple of illustrations. One is the painter's palette with all the colors. And as you're painting, you're using colors to make something. 
or you know, a little more modern, maybe people who are in, born in the, or lived through the 70s and the 80s, and you had equalizers, and you set the, the levels on the various knobs on the equalizer to get a setting, and that setting was a various combination of the various levels that you can set. But each one has a gift, and it's an amalgam of these qualities that were found in the various lists that we see. And then the church then is blessed. The church is blessed. It grows. It is for the well-being of the church when we each come together in humility and use our gifts for the betterment of the church. Now, we're going to look at here in verses 9 through 21, and I'm calling this section sort of marks of a true Christian. Because these are qualities now that you see that should also be outflows of that mind that is dedicated to the Lord, the renewed mind, the transformed mind of a life that is a living sacrifice to the Lord. Now, when we speak of marks of a true Christian, that might raise some eyebrows. Because we usually speak of Christians as those who are saved by grace through faith. You are a Christian if you have made a profession of faith if you acknowledge that you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And the classic verse for that is Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the mark of a true Christian, you would think, will be, well, it's faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's, that's what makes a true Christian. And works play no part in our salvation, In fact, Paul went through great lengths in Romans, first three chapters, to show you no one is justified, no one is saved, no one is made righteous by works of the law. He went to great pains to to establish that fact. But as we noted a couple weeks ago, our very own Heidelberg Catechism calls us to do good works. Question 86, Lord's Day 32, question 86, the answer is, you know, basically is, Since you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, why do we do good works? And it's because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image that with our whole life we show ourselves thankful to God for his blessing and that he be glorified through us. Then also that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by the fruits thereof and by our godly walk win others to Christ. So the catechism gives us four Reasons why, even though we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, to do good works. First, good works are our way of showing thanks to God. It's a way of showing gratitude for everything God has done for us. We glorify God through our good works. It confirms our faith. It's, it's a fruit of faith. We, we could see the change that the Spirit is working in our lives, and we could say, yes, I am a believer. You know, I'm not, I don't just have this empty faith that is void of good works. I have a faith that is living and active and that comes out in, in good works. So it confirms our faith, helps with our assurance. And then also then we, it's an evangelistic tool. We win others to Christ. So while we're not saved by good works, we're, we've been saved unto good works is the way many people will, will put it. Now, we may have noted this in the past, but there's always then this struggle in the church between when you're speaking, particularly when you're speaking about good works, between legalism and antinomianism. You've got the two sides of the same coin there. You've got the one that says, no, we don't need to do anything. You know, we're you know, just a simple profession of faith and we're good. And you've got the legalists like, no, you know, you've got to do, 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 and all these things. And that's how you show you're a Christian. So the legalists, as we say, will add to God's law. 
Pharisees, again, the prime example, they're the ones that add human tradition to the law of God. Jesus says, why do you, you know, why do you nullify the law of God by your own human traditions? Then the antinomian, the other side of that coin, subtracts from God's law. The antinomian places little or no emphasis on good works. They emphasize the conversion or the confession. So they'll say, as long as you can point to a time in your life where you made a profession of faith, however that was, you prayed the sinner's prayer, you, you, know, you went through the Romans road or whatever the, the means was, as long as you could point to a time in your life, you made a profession of faith and maybe you were baptized in a, in a pond somewhere during a church summer camp or however that works. As long as you can point to that time, you're good. You're golden. You don't need, you know, don't worry about that. That is your golden ticket. So that confession sort of acts like a fire assurance against uh, hell and judgment. But we know that this runs afoul of Scripture. So keep your fingers here in Romans 12 and just flip over to the book of James, chapter 2. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard this, and this has been debated, I don't know how many times throughout the history of the church, the idea that Paul and James are at odds, because Paul will say, you are justified by faith apart from works. James, in the passage you're going to read, is going to say, you're justified not by faith alone, but by works. And you're like, well, gee, that sounds like a contradiction. You know, the Bible, I thought, was supposed to be the word of God and not have any contradictions in it. It doesn't. You just need to understand what... Paul means when he says justified what James means when he says justified. But in James chapter 2, starting at verse 14, James writes, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But, if someone, uh, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture that was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers, and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, you know, so James is talking, he's using that word justified in a, in a sense that means your faith is vindicated, it is made known by your works, whereas Paul is using it in the sense of you are declared righteous by faith alone, not by works. And then Paul, and James will say, now your works are made evident or justified or vindicated by your, your faith, I should say, by your works. And they both point to Abraham, right? You know, Paul will point to Abraham and he'll say, was not Abraham, you know, justified by faith when God said, you know, you believe and now it's been accounted to you as righteousness. And uh, James will use uh, Abraham as the example when he says, when 
when Abraham offered up his son on, on the altar, that his faith was justified by that work, by that act of moving out in faith. So he's pointing to two different parts in Abraham's life. And uh, what he's saying is that Abraham's faith was made known. It was demonstrated. It was vindicated by the fact that when God said, offer up your son on the altar, that's exactly what Abraham did. He had faith knowing that even if he had to kill his own son, God would raise him from the dead. So his faith was justified. It was vindicated. It was made known. It was manifest. It bore fruit would be maybe another way to say it. So confession of faith without works to back it up is a dead faith. That's what James says. It's like, you you say you believe in God. Well, the demons do that. You know, so if you say you believe in God, but you have no good works to show for, you've got demon faith. You know, you're just as good as the devils. They believe in God. Of course they do. That's why they shudder. (laughs) That's why they're afraid, because they know what God is going to do on that day when Christ returns. They're going to be cast into the abyss for all eternity. So a confession of faith without works to back it up is a dead faith. A tree that bears no fruit is only worthy to be cut down. That's why Jesus himself said in Matthew 7.20, So then you will know them by their fruits. How do you know someone's a Christian? Well, I mean, it's not infallible, but if they're doing good works, if they're trying to live their lives by the commands of Scripture, that's a fairly good indication that they are probably a Christian. You know, if they have a confession of faith and they back it up with good works, that's probably a pretty good indication that someone's a Christian. And that's what we're going to see here in this passage in Romans nine verses, or Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. These are marks. These are the fruit that should come forth from a life that has been transformed, from a mind that has been renewed, from a life that has been given forth as a living sacrifice to God. It will bear fruit. It will bear fruit, as we saw last week, in humility, as you use your gifts for the betterment of each other and for the church, and it's going to uh, bear fruit here as we will see in this list of uh, activities that Paul has here in verses 9 through 21. So as we come into this passage this morning, we're going to see four things. First, in verse 9, these are weird titles, particularly that last one. I didn't know what to call it. I was trying to stay in the same flow, but... Verse 9, you're going to have the personal marks of a true Christian. 10 to 13, the communal marks of a true Christian within the context of the body of Christ. Verses 14 through 16, the societal marks as we interact with people outside of the church. And this one, I don't like it, but I'm calling it the antagonistic marks. As How how does a Christian behave when people are actively out to get them? (laughs) Okay, that's when people are being antagonistic toward you as the Christian, not as a Christian being antagonistic toward the society. But again, all of this is flowing out of a whole life that is dedicated to God as a living sacrifice. So first, the personal marks in verse 9. Paul deals with the personal marks of a Christian here where he says, let love be without hypocrisy. That's the first half of verse 9. So the love here Paul speaks of is the highest form of love that we see in the scriptures. It's the Greek word agape, which is most often spoken of reference to God himself. It is representative of his covenant love, his his special love to his people, his self-sacrificial love. 
Jesus speaks of this love in John's gospel in John 13, verse 34, when he tells his disciples in the upper room discourse, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So this love that we are to show here, that is to be without hypocrisy, is the love that gives of oneself to meet the needs of another without the concern of your own welfare. It is the love that gives of oneself to meet the needs of another without concern for one's own welfare. It's the love that God shows to sinful mankind when he sent his son to the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So God uh, saw the great need of the human race, saw the great need of his people to have a sin debt sent for them. So he sends his only son to die for us, to die on our behalf. And that's the kind of love that we see here. And that's the kind of love that Paul now is calling us to show, to let love be without hypocrisy. And that word there, or that phrase, without hypocrisy, is one word, on uh, hypocritos. Other translations will say, if you have the NIV, it says, let love be sincere. English Standard says, let love be genuine. It is to be an unfeigned love, not a fake love, a kind of a, the real deal love, okay? You're not just like, You know, I love you to your face, and then when your back is turned, you're saying all sorts of things about them. So it's not a fake love. It is a real, honest-to-goodness, sincere, genuine, without-hypocrisy love. And that that word, you know, hypocrite, it's just derived right out of the Greek. Because in the Greek culture, in in dramatic plays, the actor would be called a hypocritas, or hypocrite. Because they would often wear a mask, and they would be playing a role in a play. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't let your love be like that. Don't let your love be like you're an actor acting a role in a play. Oh, I love you, I love you. And then you're outside the door like, I can't stand that person. So Paul is saying true Christian love is not playing a part in a play. Love isn't self-seeking. Love isn't a product of what you can get from someone. It is shown regardless of whether or not the recipient is deserving of or of personal benefit to you. You love despite what you can get from the person. You love despite whatever they might be able to give you in return. Again, it's God's love, right? God gave his only son to us, his only beloved begotten son to us, even though we can't give anything nearly remotely close back to God in return. So let love be without hypocrisy or genuine. And another personal mark of a true Christian is seen in the last half of verse 9 where he says, Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Now this might seem self-explanatory, but you might or maybe might not be surprised how this gets abused. Because under the guise of Christian liberty, some Christians often make excuses for tolerating that which is evil. And Paul here commands us to abhor what is evil or detest or hate it. That word evil, uh, poneros, we get, it sounds like the word pornography because it kind of comes from that. It's, it's really talking about moral wickedness, you know, evil on the moral level, okay? Not like evil on like a natural level, like a natural disaster would be called evil. This is more moral evil, things that you would do, you know, 
All the, think of all the lists in the New Testament where Paul says, don't do these things. Put off these behaviors. And you get a whole list of things. That would be considered paneras or evil, moral evil. Now, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, abstain from every form of evil. So in other words, don't even entertain things that appear evil. That's the point. We're abhor what is evil. Don't try, you know, if, if the line between evil and good is right here, don't live your life kind of skating close to the line. Well, I'm not on the evil side, you know, you know, you know but you've got all this room over here. You can easily, you know, navigate over here. You know, that's the idea. But people under the guise of Christian liberty think I can go as close to this line. As long as I don't cross over, I'm okay. Problem is, a lot of times that, you know, abusing your own Christian liberty can injure the conscience of another person. That other person will see you as like, I thought that person was a Christian. You know, it's like, but he's doing these, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Well, because you're skating that line, right? You're skating right up to that line. But Paul says, abhor what is evil. Don't even entertain things that appear to be evil. But what does that look like? Well, at the expense of being accused of dodging the question, it depends. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of times what is evil depends on age to age, culture to culture. I'm not trying to be morally relativistic here, but I'm just saying, there, you know, depending on what culture you are, what time period you are, certain things are you know, evil, certain things are not. Now, there are things in the Bible that are clearly evil, and they're evil no matter what, in any time, any place, any culture. But it would probably take more time to give you individual examples than we have available. I mean, I can give you a whole list of things. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I would just refer you to places in Scripture where Paul talks about put off these behaviors, put on these behaviors, those types of passages. You can find those in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, verses 25 to 32, or Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. And maybe I'll just look at one of those real briefly. So let's look at Colossians. It's a shorter one. But if to abhor what is evil, this will be a kind of a, a sample listing of what you can think of here. Now Paul starts off Colossians 3 by talking about have your thoughts... Consider your, considering where Christ is, keep your mind there where Christ is in heaven. Uh, and then in verse 5, he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, to impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So there's a sample list of what to avoid, what to abhor, what to detest, what to hate. You could look at Romans 1, 2, when we looked at that one. You know, all that thing, you know, the people, the wrath of God is being poured against sinful man because of their unrighteousness. And he says, because of all these things, that's what to avoid. <laughs> okay, avoid those things. Don't even entertain those things. The other half of that verse is cling to what is good. 
That word cling means to stick to, to glue. <laughs> All right? You know, when, when, when uh, in Genesis 1, a husband leaves his wife and cleaves, is glued, or he leaves his parents and is cleaved to his wife, glued to his wife. So completely avoid evil things, stick to good things. So again, same as, you know, put off bad behavior, put on good behavior. The Bible never tells you don't do bad things without also telling you the good things that it wants you to do. In fact, the commandments themselves, the Ten Commandments themselves, uh, even though many of them are phrased, you know, don't do this, thou shalt not do this, there is always implied a positive side of that. Don't do this, do this. You know, don't bear false witness. Well, what's the positive side of that? Tell the truth, right? Don't commit adultery. What's the positive side of that? You know, honor your wife, honor your spouse. Don't, uh, you know, don't murder. <laughs> What's the opposite side of that? Well, love your neighbor. You know, so, in fact, you know, you can look at, I know the Heidelberg does it a little bit, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism, when it's going through the commandments, always says what this command pro- prohibits and what the good thing that you are supposed to do that is implied. So it gives you both halves of the command. But just as a good rule of thumb for this verse here, abhor what is good and abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, is don't skate along the boundaries of immoral behavior. Don't flirt. You know, if you're an alcoholic, don't spend time in a bar. You know, you know if that's your particular temptation, don't go to the bar. You know, if you have a gambling addiction, you should not be within 50 meters of a gambling establishment, right? Don't go to the casino. It's just, it's kind of that simple in a, in a lot of ways. Don't skate along the boundaries of immoral behavior. Stay far enough away by clinging to what is good. All right, moving on to the communal marks in verses 10 through 13. So personally speaking, a Christian is to be characterized by a non-hypocritical love, one who avoids evil and clings to good. Now in the body of Christ, the church, this attitude of love is to be shared liberally with others. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Now, if you have the King, New King James, that word devoted is kindly affectionate. Be kindly affectionate to one another. This is, that word speaks of a family affection. It's the, the, the love that is shared between family members. When so you say, well, I fight with my brothers and sisters all the time. Well, okay, not that kind of love. The love that actually looks out for a family member. right? One that has your brother's back, has your sister's back, you know, that kind of thing. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be devoted or kindly affectionate to one another. Now, this would be unusual in a Greco-Roman society, as it, just as it would be today. Because it's easy to love those that love the same things you do. Or it's easy to love maybe a family member. Maybe you don't care so much about somebody else's family members. Or maybe it's easy to love someone who's in your same social circles, your same social class. Maybe works in the same profession as you do. Quite another thing to love those who are outside of your normal circles, right? But again, the body of Christ is comprised of people from every walk of life, every level of society, every demographic in society. And as a family now, we are called to love one another just as you would your own natural family members. The church is a ragtag bunch of people gathered by God, oftentimes connected by nothing more than a common confession. You know, and if you really think about it, spiritually speaking, you have much more in common with a believer 
halfway around the world in a different country than you do with your next door neighbor who is an unbeliever. Even though your next door neighbor who is an unbeliever probably shares a lot of your values. You know, you probably went to school together, all these things. But you have more in common as a believer in Christ and with someone around the, the globe in another country than you do with your unbelieving next door neighbor. And as these very people, we are called then to love with brotherly love. Yes, that is the word Philadelphia. <laughs> the, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphos. And moreover, the, we are to give preference to one another in honor. And this is a call now to radical humility. It is to value others ahead of yourselves. Now again, this is a hard, this is a hard thing to do, right? It's a hard thing to do to put somebody else before you. Uh, but it is considered a mark of a true Christian. In fact, another way of translating that verse of giving preference to one another in honor is to outdo one another in showing honor. To outdo one another. So it's sort of like a, you can have like a little contest. You know, it's like, I'm going to honor you. It's like, no, 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 I'm going to honor you. No, 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 I'm going to really honor you. It's like, no, 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 I'm going to like really, really, really honor you. We're going to just, you know, we're going to one-up each other on honoring the other person. Kind of like that. So now moving on to verse 11, Paul moves on to our service to the Lord. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. If I were to summarize this verse in few words, don't be lazy worshipers. Don't be lazy worshipers. Our Christian living ought to have a measure of fervency, of zeal, of urgency. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this verse particularly convicting in my own life. Okay? Doesn't mean we need to be like some of those churches you might see on TV where they're hooping and hollering and leaping around down the aisles and things like that. Uh, But we are to have a, a high level of earnestness and zeal in our worship. And why is that? Because we're serving the Creator. We're serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That should be enough to energize our worship. And this diligence and this fervency finds its application in verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. And the hope we are to rejoice in is the hope of glory, our blessed hope. The hope that Jesus Christ will return and take us to be with himself. The hope that we will be transformed if we are here to be here when Christ returns. We will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. A true Christian does not hope in this world. And again, that's a hard thing to say because oftentimes we, you know, we are bombarded with things from the news. We see it in the papers. We hear it on podcasts. We hear it on the TV or whatever. And it's really hard. And we think, well, if only you know, we could elect somebody who is more moral or if only we could elect somebody who would restore this country to its original, you know, so on and so forth. And then we start placing our hope in those things. And then we get disappointed because even if you get the right guy elected or the right girl elected and then she's he or she served for eight years and then the next guy comes in and it's somebody you don't want and then you get disappointed again. I know I get disappointed, okay? All these things. Our hope is not to be in this world or the things of this world, but in the world to come. The new heavens and the new earth that awaits our Lord's return. And this hope then, that is the hope that fuels our perseverance and tribulation. Because it is easy, relatively speaking, 
to endure suffering now, knowing what awaits us in the age to come. If you know what's coming is better, you can endure the suffering today. If you don't have that belief, then you want to avoid suffering at all costs, right? You, know, you want this life to be as peaceful and as pleasant and as pleasing as possible. But if you know what is, awaits us, if you know the hope that we are awaiting, then you can persevere and it helps to endure the suffering now. And then finally there in verse 12, be devoted to prayer. Uh, ESV says constant in prayer. Um, as I like to say, Prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. Oftentimes, and I, I put myself in this category, oftentimes prayer is the last resort. You know, something's wrong, you've tried everything, you've called everybody you can think of, and you're like, okay, well, I guess I'll pray about it now. <laughs> and God's up there like, yeah, just waiting for you to come to me. <laughs> I've got the answer for you, if you would just come to me, you know, and then something like that. You know, so... Prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. Devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Again, think about it. Prayer, what a privilege prayer is, right? Because you have been granted an audience, again, with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us to come boldly, confidently before the throne of grace, to bring your needs before the Lord. Not with an arrogance, but with a confidence knowing that he will hear you because you are, you are his son or daughter in Christ. You now have this privilege to come into the throne room and bring your petitions and prayers before the only one who can really answer them. What a privilege it is to, to pray. We should really avail ourselves. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to knock anybody's prayer life, but it can always be improved, right? Right? I mean, in this life, anything can be improved. Then verse 13, Paul exhorts us to demonstrate uh, some more communal marks here, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Um, these, these are all part of the one another's that you find here. There are several of these one another's. There are a lot, you see a lot of them in John's gospel. When he's talking uh, to his disciples in the upper room discourse, there's a bunch of these, you know, love one another, do one another. You know, it's the word in Greek is alone. It's one another. You got a bunch of them here in Romans 12. And it's this idea of just seeing to the needs of the saints. We are to be looking out for one another. We are to be loving one another. We are to be helping one another. And in particularly, hospitality, or literally the love of strangers, is a special hallmark of Christian living, being hospitable to others. Now moving on to verses 14 through 16, we see how... We move from the sphere of the church, so to speak, now to the sphere, the larger circle of the society at large. So what are the marks of a true Christian as he or she engages in the world? Well, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. All right, how many think this is hard? <laughs> All right, admit it, right? This is hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to bless someone when I feel I'm being treated unjustly. I'm just going to be straight up and admit it. It's hard for me to think of the welfare of someone who is not thinking for my welfare, who is actually thinking for my not welfare, my unwelfare. But it's exactly what Jesus says. Paul is not, you have to understand, Paul, these commands, Paul is not breaking new ground here. He's only teaching what Jesus himself taught. Matthew 5, 44. 
I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, how many think that's hard? I think that's very hard. I want to curse those who are cursing me. It's fine, fine blessing with those who bless me. I want to curse those who curse me half the time. Now, this, I think, is probably one of the most obvious marks of a heart that is regenerated by the Spirit. A heart that blesses those intent on doing you harm. But what about justice? Justice is a hallmark of, of God, right? God is a God of justice. He judges justly. We'll get to that in a moment. So bless those who curse you. Verse 15, another mark of a true Christian is empathy. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And this applies not only with fellow Christians, but with, <clears throat> excuse me, but with all people. Again, if we're looking at that person who hates us, we want to weep when they rejoice, <laughs> and we want to rejoice when they're weeping because we don't like them, right? When someone we dislike falls on hard times, it's far too tempting to rejoice at their hardship. But we are called to a different way of life. We're called to a better way of life. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We are to show empathy and compassion with all people. And then in verse 16, the final exhortation here in that section, uh, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now, what does it mean to be of the same mind toward one another? Um, Again, other translations like the NIV, the ESV, Christian Standard Bible have live in harmony with one another. And I'm not sure I like that translation because I think, you know, that idea of being same mind toward one another is more true to the to the original language. I mean, it could mean harmonious living. But I like the idea or the interpretation that sees this is not showing partiality toward one another. Have the same mind toward each person. Be same-minded toward each person. So in other words, don't look at someone and say, okay, well, I like you. I don't like you. I like you. you know, the idea is you, you are same-minded toward one another. Don't show favoritism toward one another. Be same-minded toward all. And that's another thing James talks about, right? James the Apostle talks about that. Don't show favoritism. If someone comes to your church and they're well-clad, don't bring them over to the seat of honor. And then if someone comes in and they're shabbily clothed and you say, well, you go sit out in the foyer. Uh, we don't really want your odor kind of stinking up the, the, you know, our sanctuary here. So you, know, you just sit out there. That's the idea. It's like don't show partiality. Be same-minded toward one another. And again, this is something that is difficult. You know, as human beings, we tend to show favoritism. uh, And we need to have the Holy Spirit working in us. So it's a good thing that we have God's word to to instruct us. It's a good thing that we have God's spirit to conform us to the image of his son. And it's a good thing that we have prayer where we can lift up these concerns before God when we fall short. And then the rest of verse 16 there contains an admonition against pride and conceit. Uh, Last week, we noted the relationship between verses 3 and verse 16 about being high-minded, having a high mind, as opposed to having a sound mind or a healthy mind. It's the same thing here. Don't be conceited. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't avoid associating with with certain people or people of low station or people that you don't like. We are to be different. We are called to a different way of life. 
And now finally, Romans 12, uh, 17 through 21, which I opted to call the antagonistic marks. And the idea here is what are the marks of a true Christian when people are being overtly or openly antagonistic towards you? We'll look at verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. So how often should you repay evil for evil? Never, right? Not even once? No, never. Never repay evil for evil. Similar to verse 14, if someone is being evil towards you, you are not to respond in kind. It's that simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Again, it's a a very simple command to understand. Don't be evil toward anyone. Don't repay evil with evil. Okay, I get it. Now do it. (laughs) That's the hard part. The hard part is doing these things. You may say, well, that's Paul. What about Jesus? Well, Matthew 5.39, I got a verse for you. Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So do not repay evil with evil. Jesus said it. Paul says it. The Bible says it. That should be good enough, right? Christians are always, always, always to respect what is right in the sight of all men or to take thought of or thought for what is right in the sight of all men. Christians are to be peacemakers, not vengeance seekers. Verses 18 through 19, if possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So be at peace with all men. It says, as far as it depends upon you. In other words, you can't make someone be peaceful with you, right? You can only do your part. So as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. Now, if the other person can't be at peace with you, that's their problem. They have to deal with that with the Lord. But you are to be as far as, you know, is, is in your control, be at peace with all people. And again, this is hard. I'm not saying this is easy to do. If this were easy, everyone would be doing it and everyone would be Christians, right? But it's hard. Ever since the fall, humanity has been operating on a principle of you put one of ours in the hospital, we're going to put one of yours in the morgue, right? That's how we've always operated since the fall. And then comes the Jewish law that says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And we think, great, we can take vengeance now. No, that's not what that law means. The law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was meant to limit the amount of punishment that you can inflict for a crime. In other words, the punishment has to fit the crime. If someone pokes out your eye, you can only poke out their eye. You can't take off their arm, okay? That's, that's the idea. It was not a call for people to take vengeance. Christians are always those who attempt to be at peace, even with enemies. Again, going back to the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You are never more like God when you are a peacemaker. And again, if possible, may not always be possible, but do what you can do on your, from your side of the, of the line to be at peace. And that's why Paul then commands us to leave vengeance with God. We may feel like we want to take our pound of flesh in this life, and this may make us feel good in the short term. Ah, I've gotten back at my enemy. I've made him feel my pain. 
but then you are now not leaving vengeance for the room of God. We will never have perfect justice in this life. That's why Paul says, leave room for the wrath of God. And then he gives us two Old Testament quotes in verses 19 through 20. Uh, These come out of Deuteronomy 32, 35 and Proverbs 25, 21 through 22, respectively. The Lord will right all wrongs eventually. Maybe in this life, but certainly at the end of this age. The Lord will right all wrongs. He will settle all scores. So by showing kindness to your enemy, you not only shame them when you show kindness to them, but the burning coals that Paul references here from that quote from Proverbs is also a reference to God's judgment. They will feel not only the shame of you being kind to them, but they'll feel the, the pain of the wrath of God knowing that they, are, they have been in the wrong, that they have committed evil. So be kind to your enemies and leave room for God's wrath. And then finally, in verse 21, this verse, I believe, just really summarizes the whole passage we've looked at so far. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, don't let evil conquer you. That's what that word is. Don't let evil conquer you. You need to conquer evil with good. And good will ultimately triumph because God will ultimately triumph. Well, these are the marks of a true Christian. These are some of the evidences that demonstrate a life that has been lived as a living sacrifice. And maybe you might thinking, well, what if I don't show all of these marks? What if I'm not showing these marks in my life? And the question isn't, are you perfect in all of these marks? The question is, do I see where I fall short? And then do I endeavor by the power of the Holy Spirit to do better? Do I then seek the Lord in prayer? Do I then go to his word to try to be instructed better from his word so that I will then going forward live a life that is pleasing to the Lord? That's the point. Don't think that, well, I don't have all of these marks or I don't show these marks perfectly. The point is, is your life moving in the right direction? Right? Are you moving so that your profession of faith matches your practice? That's the point. Well, next time, Romans chapter 13, we will look at that on the 23rd. I will not be here for Sunday school next week, but on the 23rd, now we will look at how being a living sacrifice is applied to how Christians interact with the government in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. That's what we'll look at in two weeks.